This is the Hartwell Studio Works Sports Branding Podcast, Episode 6, The Olympic Brand, with Terrence Burns. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Hartwell Studio Works Sports Branding Podcast. I'm John Hartwell. I'm the brains and pencil behind Hartwell Studio Works. I'm a sports brand designer in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is for front office personnel who want to harness the power of sports branding to win more fans. This episode is being released in the middle of the 2018 Winter Olympic Games in Pyeongchang, South Korea. The Olympic Games are arguably the oldest and most recognized sports property in the world, so I thought it might be appropriate to talk to someone who, you know, might know a thing or two about the Olympics and the Olympic brand. That person is Terrence Burns. Terrence has been involved with the Olympics since the 96 Summer Games here in Atlanta, and he has spent his career deeply involved in the movement with both candidate bid cities and marketing of the games around the world. I learned a lot. I'm sure you will too. Enjoy the conversation. So welcome today to the Hartwell Studio Work Sports Branding Podcast, Terrence Burns. Good morning, Terrence. How are you? John, I'm well. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing very well. So Terrence, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your background in the Olympic movement? Well, I know I don't look this old, but I've been around the Olympics since uh, 1993. Uh, and I got into the Olympics uh, when I was working with Delta Airlines, and I was asked to uh, to manage their sponsorship of the Games in Atlanta in 1996. And I kind of fell in love with it, you know. Uh, I'd been at Delta 15 years, and suddenly I found myself in this world where people were talking about values and a 3,000-year-old brand, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, and after those games, I was fortunate enough to be asked by some friends to uh, help form a, a marketing company for the International Olympic Committee. It was called Meridian Management. So we managed something called the TOP program, which is the global sponsorship program of the Olympic movement. We did that for about eight years. I lasted about five and then, and then went out on my own. Um, but I fell in love with the ethos uh, of Olympism. And that simply means I... I'm lucky enough to wake up every single day and work on, on something that can literally change the world. And not many people can say that. So I've helped uh, five cities change the course of their futures by, by winning the games. And uh, I'm proud of it. So I could be, I tell people I could be selling soap, but I get to sell hope. It sounds kind of corny, but I'm very, very thankful and proud to do it. Wow. That is cool. So as you mentioned, the Olympic games are the ancient games are 3,000 years old. The modern games are 120 years old. Clearly, the Olympics is uh, the most, it's the oldest and most recognizable sports property in the world. Um, and yet, despite that size and all that history, uh, the, the movement is guided by uh, Baron de Coubertin's vision, um, which I think it's fair to say we would we would today call, call a brand. So mm -hmm. my first question to you then is, what is the Olympic brand, and why does that Olympic brand matter? Well, uh, I'll, I'll give you a little clue. The Olympics is not about sports. And now that sounds provocative and strange. But I've been doing this a long time, including you know real research as opposed to what I feel in my heart. 
Uh, people around the world are very clear. The Olympics are more than sport. Uh, I like to say that sport is the destination that takes us to the values that the Olympics demonstrate. And those are pretty simple things. Friendship, fair play, hope, dreams, inspiration. Those things are applicable in any culture, any demographic. It really is the most universal brand short of a religion uh, that I'm aware of. And I'm really not aware of any wars that have been fought over, uh, over the Olympic brand the way that they have over some religions. So not to put too, uh, too heavy an emphasis on it, uh, but it really does stand for something and people around the world understand it. They get it. That it's, it's rooted very much in values that strike very deep emotional core or strikes a very deep emotional core. It's very aspirational. Would that be a correct way of, of, of putting that? That's true. And people internalize it in many, many ways beyond sport. Um, did research all over the world for the IOC on this brand and that meant focus groups. Pretty fascinating to see people talk about the Olympics. People who are unashamed to tell you that they don't like sports, they don't watch sports, they're not athletic, um, but they love the Olympics because the Olympics stand for, frankly, the best in us. It's a celebration of humanity, and they know that, and they can all participate. So with with that very high ideal of emotional aspiration, what would you say that the Olympics do well in supporting that that foundation of their brand and those emotional connections? And then maybe what what are some ways in which they perhaps don't do it well? Uh, you know, I think, I think one of the secrets of the Olympic brand is its ability to refresh itself. All great brands refresh themselves periodically, whether it's McDonald's or Coca-Cola or Google or Apple or whomever. Um, you know, a lot has been said lately about the, the bid city races and how difficult it is cities are pulling out and maybe the game should just stay in one place or rotate between just a few cities. I personally think that would kill the Olympic brand. I think what they do well is they every two years, they pick a winter or a summer city and they allow that city and its people and its culture to reinterpret the Olympic brand in its own voice and its own dreams. Now it's the same brand, it's the same product, but let's be honest, uh, you know, Nagano was as different from Salt Lake City, was as different from Vancouver, was as different from Sochi, all completely different human cultural experiences around the same product. I think that's the genius of it to me, um, letting it be shared and interpreted and, dare I say, resurrected every two years by a different culture and a different group of dreamers. That keeps it fresh. That's what they do well. Very good. Excellent. Thank you. Um, in regards to that size and scope of the Olympics, I make, I've made the argument in, uh, in previous episodes of this podcast that a brand's target audience can never be everybody. Usually you're talking about a defined set of demographics of some sort. Um, but to your point, with the size and the scope of the Olympics, you're, you're picking different cities, you're moving around the world, um, I, a strong case might be made that everybody is indeed the Olympic target audience. Um, how would you define the Olympic brand's target audience? It is everybody. We spend a lot, a lot of time trying to, to do differentiation exercises, fragmentation exercises, demographic, psych psychographic. It does appeal to everyone. Um, 
the paradox of, of that statement is the current passionate fan of the Olympic Games, not the movement, not the values, but the games themselves, is probably white and over 55. Now, any brand in the world would see that as the death zone, <laughs> you know, on the way to the top of Everest. You don't want you don't want your passionate customer to be white and over 55. You want them to be between 18 and 34. So the Olympic movement, the IOC are aware of this. Uh, they struggle with it. It's something that they're trying to tweak uh, in terms of sports, uh, in terms of how it's broadcast, et cetera. That's changed dramatically. You're going to see for the first time ever uh, in Pyeongchang, uh, Intel, who is a, br a brand new top partner, will be doing virtual reality filming. You'll be able to experience, if you have the right equipment, uh, some of the uh, Pyeongchang games in virtual reality. And it's an attempt by the movement to, to make, you know, they do recognize that they need to, uh, to bring this, uh, this product into the 21st century. I like to say it's, you know, the IOC are a tremendous group of people. Uh, they, uh, they really, really believe in what they're doing, but they're working with a 21st century brand in a 19th century construct. In other words, the way that they're structured and the way that they make decisions that I'm talking about the membership. Um, so there's, you know, they're not perfect. The other thing I would say about the Olympics and, and critics and cynics, um, let's not forget that the Olympics are really an ideal. It's an ideal, but it's managed by human beings. And we're never ideal. We struggle. Um, so there are things about the Olympics that aggravate me. There are things that I can criticize but I also understand being around it for so long, I've seen it just change people's lives and countries' lives and cities' lives. And I believe there's much more good there than there is negativity. And the negativity typically is due to uh, the problems of being managed by human beings. Very good. Thank you. So let's talk about the, the 18 to 35-year-old demographic that you mentioned that the Olympics um, are looking to recapture or get interested in the games. In one of your blog posts, uh, you write about the idea that it might be a result of a product problem, a promotion problem, or a presentation problem. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about each of those three uh, problems and uh, what they mean and their implications for the Olympic brand? Sure, uh, at least from my perspective. The product is what you see on television. It's the sports that are, that are there. And I, I think anyone can look at the Olympic Games today and, and, and quibble over what's actually taking place and who is really interested in it. Is an 18 to a 34-year-old male going to be super interested in tandem trampoline? Or should they consider something like a tough mutter? I mean, that's, that's, that's one extreme to the other. In the middle of something, let's look at squash. Squash is a great sport. It's huge uh, in, in, in Southeast Asia uh, where the Olympics need to be more relevant. Uh, it's not in the games. Uh, you know, why isn't it in the games? There's a thousand political reasons why. But I think when I talk about the product, I'm talking about what are the sports that are in the games. And believe me, there are only so many that can be. It's only 17 days long. It's highly political, which sports are in there and which aren't. There are some that have been in there since the beginning of time. One is modern pentathlon which was created by Pierre de Coubertin in the late 1800s, which was supposed to espouse uh, the, uh, the qualities of every gentleman at the time. 
So those five sports, you know, riding horses, fencing, swimming, shooting, the gun, I mean, are they relevant today? We can debate that all day. So the product piece, and believe me, the IOC are working on it. They have an entire department that's focused on trying to figure out how to put a Olympic Games together that's more relevant to people 18 to 34 years old. Uh, It's a little bit different trying to make that happen in the Olympic world than in a normal corporate world. So that's the product. Promotion, uh, ongoing problem. If you look at organizing committees, an organizing committee is, for, for example, Pyeongchang is an organizing committee. Tokyo is an organizing committee. Uh, Beijing, LA, Paris, all of these cities that have won the games become something called organizing committees. We call them OCOGs. And frankly, it's up to them to promote their games. Uh, And the reality is they're in the business of putting on a games and preparing the games. And they're always strapped for money. They have very little promotional money to market themselves in a traditional sense. The IOC is the same. They have a very small budget. So at the end of the day, it's it's up to sponsors and broadcasters. And here we are today. I'm in Atlanta. I'm you're in Georgia, I think. I'm not sure where you are now, John. Atlanta. <laughs> Maybe yeah. <you're> still, <laughs> yeah. We're in Atlanta. We're in North America. You would not know that the Pyeongchang games are happening in two weeks or ten day, now nine days away. You wouldn't know it if you if probably if you hadn't seen a promo from NBC saying the games are coming. Mm-hmm. That's the only way you would know. Pyeongchang's not spending a penny in the marketplace. The IOC's not spending a a penny in the marketplace. Sponsors won't be running ads until almost close to games time. So how do you promote a games? What's the promotional plan 18 months out for an an organizing committee to raise awareness, to generate ticket sales, and more importantly, to espouse the values of the Olympic movement? That's a problem. And finally, the presentation itself how the sports are presented at the games. And all I can tell you is the the best time you will ever have at the Olympic Games, excuse me, in my opinion, would be uh, go to a summer games and go to beach volleyball. It's exciting. It's fun. It's a party. It is supercharged. Uh, that, That federation and all of these federations control sports at the games. It's not really Rio that controls the sport at the Rio games. It's not the IOC, it's the International Volleyball Federation that determines the sport, how it's gonna be portrayed, et cetera. So beach volleyball have done a wonderful job of modernizing and frankly, sexing up their their sport. It's beautiful to watch in person and on television. Uh, You know, contrast that with some of the more boring sports that they, it's really hard to make some of these sports exciting on television. Another one that would surprise you is you you would probably turn your nose up at curling People make fun of curling. If you've ever been to a curling event live or even watch it, even during the games, it's really exciting. They've done a good job of making something, you know, a rock sliding across the ice, pretty cool. So if they can address the product, the promotion of that product and the presentation of that product better uh, with an eye toward the millennials, I think they're halfway there to solving the problem to make sure this thing is around for another 120 years. Very good. So in taking that, that presentation idea uh, and, and, sh- and aiming it towards that, that millennial demographic, um, I think that probably has some relevance to the idea of one of the most popular uh, aspects of the game is the look of each of the games. As mm-hmm. you said, each city uh, presents it in, in its own cultural context. Um, it's, I think it's accurate to say that the, that the 
that the logo for the London 2012 games was probably <laughs> one of the most polarizing and and uh, and divisive and derided logos that I can certainly remember in, in, in as much and as long as I've been aware of of, of Olympic logos and brands. Um, but it was done for a purpose, and so I'm wondering if you can talk about the the strategy behind that logo uh, and and how it, ex, it it expressed the the Olympic brand and as part of that reinvention, as you said, of the brand. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. It certainly was one of the most polarizing uh, in recent recent years. Um, confusing might be another word. Listen, I wasn't part of that process. I I, I wasn't part of the strategy. I know when I was working for the International Olympic Committee in marketing, we worked with the organizing committees to help them understand the brand. Uh, but we didn't want to really get in the middle of trying to help them articulate it visually or any other creative way, because frankly, it's their games. Uh, and the London games are the London games. Uh, look, you know, in retro, I remember the I remember the discussions with people who worked there at the time, and I've obviously been aware of the discussion since. Um, well, they, I think what they did was bold. I think they tried to break a mold. Most of the Olympic Games marks in recent years were basically a logo bug uh, that was meant to use, uh, for lack of anything else, to promote with commercial partners. And they could put their logos next to it, you know, with a line in the middle, and you've got a composite logo. I think all those things started looking like wallpaper. They all kind of look the same. Um, you go way back, and, the, and they were pretty interesting logos. Uh, I, as an aside, I just worked for the LA 2028 Olympic bid, uh, and I was very excited about the logo that we finally settled on. And, uh, you know, it's always a goat rodeo, a creative goat rodeo, <laughs> trying to do taglines and, and logos. But um, the LA logo, for example, was a human being. Well, it was kind of a human being. It was an angel. But it was a human form. I'd never seen that in a logo uh, an Olympic logo, and we were very proud of it. It was a human form, uh, and it happened to be female, and it happened to be an athlete, and it happened to be an angel. But back to London, um, yeah, it was a very different demographic they were trying to address. They were trying to address the people you and I are talking about right now, maybe even skewing younger, people who are very comfortable being online, people who are very comfortable with you know, graphics, uh, anime, everything. And that logo was designed to be deconstructed and used in many ways, kind of a plug-and-play uh, Lego logo, for lack of a better word. And we can debate all day about its artistic um, usefulness. Uh, you either like it or you didn't. <clears throat> for them, uh, for for LA, or excuse me, for London, I, you know, they, they're proud of it. They think it served their needs. Their sponsors liked it. And at the end of the day, that's all. That's all that really matters. It was their games. It was their logos. Uh, their logo. So one has to respect it. Very good. All right. So last question here, we've talked a lot, you know, these big grand aspirational ideals for the Olympics and the Olympics has its own set of challenges because of that size. Um, but I think there are some common threads that run through just the idea of what is a brand and, and how do you use it as a sports property? So what can, what can smaller sports properties, whether it's a league, it's a team, it's a collegiate program, um, what can they learn from the Olympic brand? That's a good question. I mean, the Olympic brand is quite different than any other sports brand that I've worked on. I worked on several for-profit sports brands. Uh, the Olympic movement has something called the Olympic Charter. 
And the Olympic Charter, the beginning of the Olympic Charter, I think there are 10 or 11 or 12, I can't remember, fundamental principles of Olympism. Uh, and it's kind of like, you know, the Bible for the Olympics. Um, and there, it, it's about values. <clears throat> and it, the Olympic, at the core of the Olympic movement, it, it's about using sport to make the world better, to educate young people to make the world better. That's it. That's its ethos. That's everything they do ostensibly flows back to that statement. Um, that's what makes it very, very powerful. So I don't know how one does that for, say, the NFL or Formula One or Premier League or you know, pick, pick any of it. But I think that people love sports because it links to values that they either espouse or aspire to or both. So if I'm a sports branding person, if I'm a sports marketing person, um, it's too easy to focus on the sport and the product on the field of play as opposed to why people love it. And they love it, as we started right back at the beginning, brings people together, breaks down barriers. Um, it's something that we are born knowing how to do. Every single person is born knowing how to play. And that begins with walking, begins with running, something we all share, irrespective of your politics or whatever you believe in. Uh, everybody likes to play. So this whole concept of making sports marketing and sports branding more values-oriented, I think is important. It works for the Olympics. Is it completely transferable to other sports brands? Probably not, but some of it is. And I think one of the problems you're seeing right now with maybe uh, – falling viewership in the NFL. Uh, what does the NFL stand for? Uh, you know, it, it's big money. It's, it's, it's athletes are being used, uh, frankly, in, in, you know, to make money irrespective of what it does to their bodies over the long term. Um, it's a machine designed to make money. And at some point, I think that becomes a hollow promise to consumers, irrespective of how exciting the product is on the, on the field of play. Very good. Excellent. Well, Terrence, this has been a really great conversation. I very much appreciate uh, your taking the time to talk about uh, the Olympic brand. This episode is going to uh, be published actually uh, during the second week of, of the uh, Pyeongchang Games, so this will be uh, mighty relevant. Um, thanks so much for, for, for taking the time, and uh, I do look forward to uh, catching up with you soon. My pleasure, John. Thank you. My thanks again to Terrence for his time and willingness to share his thoughts on the Olympic brand. I hope you found this conversation helpful and that you'll be able to use it in your efforts to win more fans. You can get in touch with Terrence through LinkedIn, Twitter, and email. That information can be found in the show notes for this episode at the podcast page of my website, HartwellStudioWorks.com. If you would... Subscribe and leave a five-star review and write a review in iTunes and help other sports professionals find this podcast. If you'd like to talk about this episode, you can reach out to me by email at john at hartwellstudioworks.com. And you can follow me on social media on Twitter and Instagram using the handle Hartwell Studio. You can check out my entire portfolio of sports branding work at hartwellstudioworks.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time.